0: A gunshot tore through the mellow evening air. John Carnegie, occupant of room 16 in the Hatland Motel, had just taken his own life. It was a nasty suicide. There could be no doubt about that. He was sprawled out horribly on his blood-spattered bed, arms and legs positioned at awkward angles. The forty-four caliber pistol that John had used to shoot himself was still grasped in one cold, dead hand. In the other hand, there was a fountain pen, locked in his curled fingers. Close nearby, at the nightstand, there was a black, leather-bound journal. The pages of this journal were consumed in neat handwriting, right down to the very last line. When these writings were later read by the police, they were almost immediately declared to be the deranged ramblings Of a madman. However, hidden away in the depths of John Carnegie's final testament, there's a story. While certainly incredible and most likely the product of a man suffering from delusions, as the investigator stated, the wife of John Carnegie, Diane, said herself that she believed every word her husband had written down. Entry 1 Walk with me. I have six days before I die. However, when I do die, it will be on my own terms. My plan is to end my own life. Diane and Carl are paying a week-long visit to the grandparents that I personally arranged. Also that way they could come home to find out that I have eaten a bullet. Do I feel guilty for this? Yes. Very much so. Deceiving my own wife and child was difficult enough, but knowing that I have put them through more than I could possibly imagine is unbearable. However, given the circumstances of my predicament, I would rather kill myself than live on. My name is John Carnegie, and I am the Reaper of Raleigh, North Carolina. I am the slaughterer of four women. Colleen Simpson, Marianne Lewis, Sally Everhart, and Amber Walterson have all met untimely ends at the blade of my axe. I am an American serial killer guilty of crimes that could get me locked up for several consecutive life sentences. I've decided I'm not going to prison. I plan to end everything in a few days with a pen in one hand and a gun in the other. But before I do inexorably put this pistol in my mouth and subsequently decorate the bedsheets with my brains, I feel the need to tell everyone why I committed these dastardly deeds. I don't want to be remembered as a monster, although I fear that is inevitable. I want people to understand that while I did do some very terrible things, I literally had no choice. So. With that said, I shall recount the events of the past few years in this little journal that I was able to find in the convenience store right by this shabby motel. It's going to take a while, and I realize that my story is by no means short, but I think that it'll be worth it, just so that my family will know that I'm not insane. Everything started with a car wreck. I can remember the exact date as if it were just yesterday though it seemed like it happened a very long time ago. It was April the 4th, 2012. I had a decently well-paying job as an accountant for my local tax firm and at many dark hours I would find myself going home late from the office. This was one of those nights. My mind was exhausted from a tough day at work, I promised myself that when I got home I would have a nice cup of hot chocolate before settling down into bed. Coming upon an intersection in the road, I made what was possibly the worst mistake of my life. I ran a red light. Now you have to remember that it was nearing midnight and the streets were all but abandoned. This was something I actually did often, so I wasn't taken completely by surprise When the sharp beam of headlights pierced through my windows of my car. I didn't really even have time to react. I was trying to make the split-second decision on whether I should brake or accelerate when the car hit me. Everything happened incredibly fast. There was an immediate boom as my car was impacted. I was vaguely aware of the sounds of glass shattering and tires screeching. I tried to move my arms, but realized in a daze that the airbag was deployed, restricting my movement, (laughs) and the next thing I knew I was spinning. My entire world became a twisted carnival ride that was careening out of control. Then I went for a steep dive into a ditch, hit my head, and blocked out. What followed was the most painful experience of my life, or more accurately, my temporary death. For an infinitesimal amount of time, everything was simply black. Then, I began to fall. I couldn't see anything. But I was gathering speed, and I could feel merciless hot winds tearing at my body as I plunged downwards. I kept expecting to wake up with a sharp jerk in the stomach, as everyone has woken up from a dream in this way at one point or another. But surprisingly, that didn't happen. Instead, I landed... In the grounds of hell to even try to describe this abomination of a place would be pointless I would have to go on for hours talking about the pure vileness of it all it was a world of pain far worse than anything or anyone could ever imagine the things that I saw in there were considerably scarier than any living man could have the displeasure of viewing and I dare try not to put them to paper The one thing I remember most about the place and the thing that I would indulge in writing was the burning that lay within. The flames that licked their greedy lips upon my body, scalding every inch of me while I cried out in endless pain. And of course, there was the beast. The beast approached me leisurely, walking through the flames on its two padded paws like it was nothing at all. It didn't appear to be capable of feeling the burn. With every movement it made, its cloak swished about his animalistic ankles, a cloak made of human scalps that had been woven together by the strands of hair attached to withered flesh. The beast was nothing short of a monster, sort of like what I had become, but in a much more literal sense. He was a curious cross between man and animal with his milky white complexion, black claws that extended inches from his fingertips, and iron fangs that sprouted from blackened gums. Massive horns of ornate ivory protruded from its forehead. Its human face was old and wrinkled. His hair was a long natural black that caressed his shoulders and cascaded down his back. However, the thing that I will never forget was its eyes. The eyes of the beast were of the deepest shades of golden yellow, Beautiful, but also poisonous in the most sinister of ways. I was on the ground, gasping desperately for the effort that it was taking me to withhold the pain. The beast looked down at me in a mocking sort of pity, almost seeming to smile at me with its warped characteristics. Then it knelt down beside me, resting its several knees before extending a single clawed hand outwards. Its finger touched my chest, and I jerked backwards, not wanting to be near this monster who wanted so much to take pleasure from my anguish. The thing let out a cold laugh. Suddenly, I was immobilized, and even on the inside I was screaming, on the out I was remaining completely still, incapable of doing anything at all as the beast reached out its claw and stroked my chest. Gently at first, before digging in ripping in six concise movements across my torso, five of these being straight lines and one of them being circular. I was being attacked mentally just as well as physically. Memories of evil were being projected into my head. I was forced to look at terrible images. A mother being murdered before her children, a young boy pulling out his teeth one by one with a set of pliers. A man having his legs cut off while spectators watched in horrid fascination. Then, there was the beast itself, screaming its name, Castor, over and over in my head. When he withdrew, I was once able to move, and when I looked down upon myself, I discovered that a pentagram had been carved into my chest by the mighty claw of Castor. I had been marked by a demon. It was then when I observed my wound in horror, when the defibrillator revived me. My eyes snapped open and for a moment I could not see. Then my vision cleared and I stared into the masked faces of the paramedics above. I had died and had paid a visit to hell. It took the nurses a while to subdue me. I was screaming at all of them, trying to get them to understand my terror. Hell existed. It was very real, and it had almost claimed me. I was still spitting and reeling in my constraints when I felt the room begin to spin. I woke up again later, this time not to the faces of paramedics and doctors, but to my son and daughter. All of the horrible things that had happened in the last few hours, the car crash, the trip to hell, and Castor suddenly vanished. Diane showered me with her love kissing me all over and asking me again and again, Are you alright? She pressed her hand against my cheek, looking into my eyes with the sincerest of concerns. Then there was the endless parade of questions. John, look at me in the eye. Tell me, how did this happen? Where's the person who did this to you? What were you thinking, running a red light? Carl was bursting with excitement to see me and despite my best efforts, I had a difficult time trying to wrap my arms around him, what with my various bandages and other restricting forces, and despite my best efforts. He asked me a few questions on his own, including, Dad, will you be able to finish my treehouse? I had been working on a treehouse for Carl and his friends for about five weeks. I had done it as a sort of recreational project, I estimated that it would be finished in a couple of months. I smiled at him, stroking his hair, and responded, ''Yeah, of course I will, Carl. I can still do that.'' Then with a sudden, vehement anger that you often see on the faces of toddlers when they don't get what they want, he let loose his resentment in a furious demand, saying, ''Where's the guy who did this to you, and why haven't you kicked his ass yet?'' To this, I could only give laughter, and while Diane gasped and called for him to tell her at once where he had learned such language, I stared at her with love while she scolded him, pointing a finger and absent-mindedly tucking a strand of golden hair behind her ear. I always knew that she would be a good mother. Diane was, and still is, the most gorgeous woman on the planet to me. I remember seeing her in college for the first time, in a large crowd of people, A single blonde head of hair caught my attention, and I sped up, nudging my way past people thinking it was an old friend of mine. You can probably imagine my surprise when I finally caught up with this person and was faced with a very pretty girl that I had never met before instead of a buddy from high school. Hey, uh, sorry about this, I thought you were someone else. With that phrase spoken, I turned and was about to make my escape when she replied, Hey yourself, where are you going? Aren't you going to miss me? I swiveled in place, taking in another good look at this mysterious girl. She had the bluest eyes I had ever seen, which were flickering with humor. I'm heading to my accountant class. What about you? Her head nodded slightly. The bemused half-smile on her face was never fading. I have art class. Say, where are you going a second ago? If your class is accounting, then we could both be moving in that same direction. Uh, bathroom, I stammered, face reddening. There's a bathroom in the hall up ahead. Come here, walk with me. Why she was suddenly so accepting of me, I will never know. All of my other failed romances had left me with the mentality that I was probably going to be a bachelor for as long as I lived. But when I talked to this girl... I felt within myself a blossoming of hope, I think she could tell I was interested in her in more ways than one, so she was careful never to make things awkward between us. I learned that the name of this girl was Diane Tiller. She had the ambition to become an artist, and she came from Blackwood. By the time that we had to go our separate ways, we had exchanged phone numbers and agreed to go out to eat sometime, and so it began. A romance that should have lasted a lifetime, and one that I am regretfully about to cut short. The years we spent together must have been the best of my life, with the exception of these past four. We took to each other immediately on our first date. Diane was energetic, funny, attractive, and of course, thoughtful of me. We started to go out together more and more often. She was actually the more courageous one of us two when it came to romantic gestures. It had been her that sent me flowers for the first time. Things just escalated from there. My confidence began to grow. We started to see each other every day instead of just on the weekends. I went out of my way to impress her, going as far as to buy her tickets to a concert featuring Led Zeppelin, which I knew was her favorite band. I insisted that she go with a friend, but she took my hand, looked me in the eye, and pulled me in for a long, lingering kiss before declaring that... I should go with her. Four months after that, I asked her to marry me in a secluded loneliness of my dorm room. I had made sure to get rid of my roommates, whom I knew would ruin the whole experience. I wanted my proposal to be private, away from the prying eyes of my college friends, who had become the background of my big picture that was now Diane. As soon as I was on my knees, Diane was saying yes with tears in her eyes that spilled down over her cheeks as she inspected the lovely iridescent diamond ring that I had bought for her with a large portion of the little money that I had. Diane, if you are reading this, then I am truly sorry for the pain I caused you. What I am doing is selfish, but in truth I am only delaying what is inevitable. I was going to go to hell anyways when I died, and I simply can't stand to live on this earth any longer. The longer I stay here, the more people will die of deaths they don't deserve. At least when I am in hell, my sin will be truly punished, and I have hopefully saved more innocent people. What I am doing is more than just suicide. It is a sacrifice for the greater good. Entry 2. Castor's Curse The injuries sustained from my accident were ugly, and definitely ugly, But after some medical care, they were no longer life-threatening. The third-degree burns that covered the back of my arms and legs were soothed. The cut of my arm that had drained me of much of my blood was firmly bandaged. And in a short period of time, my head had mostly recovered from the damage of my concussion. It became quickly apparent to me that something was dreadfully wrong with my life soon after I was liberated from the hospital bed. Diane was so kind to me just as she always was. She greeted me in the waiting area, and much to the surprise of every other patient there, planted a kiss on my lips that lasted for several long seconds, with no perceptible embarrassment. I had to grin to myself. Something like this was really exciting what I would expect from Diane. After that, she helped me to her vehicle that I had bought for her 30th birthday, and we were off. Diane chatted with me all the way back, as if nothing had ever happened at all or I wasn't hurt, deciding to talk instead about the monthly book club that she was participating in, as well as how well Carl was doing in school. All of his teachers were vouching for how quickly he was learning. I felt pride rise from within myself. I knew that one day Carl would do great things. Looking back on it, speaking on topics such as neighborhood gossip and Carl doing so well in school was a wise move. I didn't at all want to speak of the wreck that I had been through, and the experience that I was trying to pass off in my mind as some sort of strange dream. I was actually trying to convince myself of this at the time. I thought that the fire that I had felt, as well as the cloth castor, could simply have been pain of the accident of the subconscious level. That was when the freight train almost hit us. We were on a road that had a railway crossing sign that was seemingly broken. The lights that usually signaled the coming of the train that was traveling at high speeds did not flicker to life as they usually would have. The red and white bars didn't make their sudden crisscross about our path to home. Instead, the approaching train hurled from between the squeaky pines like a thousand-pound metal wildcat. I was quick to react. I slammed and pounded my hand down towards Diane's leg, causing her foot to hit the brake. Pain shot through my arm like a hot wire, but I paid it no mind. We managed to stop at the last possible moment. Holy shit, Diane breathed, breathlessly from our near demise. I had given her a small bruise from the impact of my hand on her leg, but it was of little consequence when compared to what could have possibly happened. She started to rant. I swear to God, I'm going to Sue. Aren't these railways supposed to be, like, inspected or something? It took me a minute or two to calm her down, and then by then... A train had passed and our hearts had returned to their normal pace. We shakily continued to make our way home. This was the first of many strange incidents which I had almost died. I suppose the best way to explain it would be to say that I had been cursed with a death jinx. It was almost something insignificant that almost got me killed. I would go to saw off a piece of wood for Carl's tree, only to find that a knife was missing. And then when I opened a particular cabinet in my search, the blade would come plunging down from a precarious perch at the top, and I barely had any time to get out of the way before it impaled itself in the wooden work table. Or it would be something as small as a spider that made a home for itself in my closet. I went to put on my sports jacket one morning and didn't notice the black widow's plump body until I felt something crawling on my back. And when I shook the jacket out of the spider hit the ground, and began to scuttle towards a crack in the floorboards. Strange events like these continued to happen over a period of two weeks. I was always just clever enough to know when they were going to happen, and I had several very close calls. Rat poison somehow found its way into my soup. I received an electrical shock from a chewed wire that could have been severe. I became extremely paranoid to say the least. Near accidents just kept happening. One incident after another that should have or could have gotten me killed, but never did. A loose brick on my house fell from above while I was raking the leaves outside, nearly causing me serious head trauma. While I was carrying the shards of broken glass out to our trash can, a protruding branch just outside the back door nearly made me trip and spear myself. The first few times this happened I tried to pass it off as nothing more than a strange coincidence, but eventually... I realized that there was something more ominous going on. I stayed indoors all day, going as far as to call further injury leaving on my job for fear of another wreck. I did not understand at the time what was happening to me, and I prayed feverishly every day, night and day for God to help me. I had never been particularly religious before then, but Events such as these tend to bring the idea of divine intervention to light in a positive way. Suddenly, I was indulging in prayers that I had been taught in my Catholic upbringing. Diane and Carl were both very concerned. They didn't understand why I was acting the way that I was. One afternoon, Diane approached me, and I was pretending to watch a football game in the secluded loneliness of the master bedroom when I heard a knock on the door. Without waiting for approval, Diane stuck her head in. "'What is it, sweetheart?' I asked with a sigh. She stepped into the room slowly, as if treading on ice. She was wringing her hands and biting her lower lip. "'What is it, Diane? Come on, you can tell me.' "'What's wrong with you?' "'Huh? You know what I mean, John. You never come out of your room anymore. What's happening?' It's nothing. I guess I'm just not comfortable with any of that. That wreck scared me. I think I'm going to get back into the swing of things, but not quite yet. She was nodding her head thoughtfully. What was a surefire sign in her own language that she knew that there was more to the story? Look, Diane, I promise you there's no need to worry here. She still looked unconvinced, so I pressed on saying, I'll go back to work at the end of the week. Really? I will. Almost immediately I regretted letting my promise slip out. Diane's concern lessened a degree or two, but now I had allowed myself to make a mistake that would force me to confront my fears. Diane, having her concerns vacuished, left the room, and I locked the door behind her. Seemed like I spent days praying, but my hopes went nowhere, and I eventually realized what I had known all along deep within although I did not want to admit it. God no longer cared about me. No amount of prayer could possibly induce anything to happen that could save me. I was cast from God's sight for a sin that I had never even committed. I recognized more the fact that God no longer cared. I comprehended that he was cruel. It was a dark realization that paved the road for those many more that were to come. I remembered my post wreck vision, detail by detail. The whole experience had seemed so real. After much contemplation, I began to pray. Not to God this time, but to anyone who was listening. I pleaded with the thoughts that appeared so imprisoned inside my own mind that for someone or something that was omniscient, a higher power help my situation. In my desperation, I prayed to Castor, the demon that I had seen in the flames of hell. I asked what it wanted from me and if there was anything I could do to stop this curse that was haunting me and ruining my life. Entry 3 A deal with a demon In only a day, my prayers to Castor were responded to in the form of a dream. In this dream, I was sitting in the plush-lined booth seat in the corner of a restaurant. Everything was incredibly real. It was as if I were actually there. All around me were people sitting and talking to each other. Every one of them was smiling and laughing, and occasionally there would be a clink of their ruby-filled wine glasses against their silverware. Some of these men and women, but Others were old and some were very young, no less than teenagers as a matter of fact. The youngest one, a boy of about fifteen, who wore long hair and a Slayer t-shirt talked openly with a blonde woman who looked to be in her fifties. The tables and booths were lavish, made of the finest wood that had ever been stained and scrubbed clean of any imperfections, and the air was filled with the faint aroma of apple crisp and creamy cheddar soups that made my mouth water. The walls were covered in the most intricate and beautiful paintings. One of them depicted a man holding a blackened rose to a woman who was blushing profusely. Another showed a picturesque country road that was partially obscured by the towering orange autumn trees and, oddly enough, paved bright red. A gentle twang of a harp being played by slender fingers gave the place a sense of comfort and well-being. I craned my neck. Looking for the unseen player of the harp that is when i caught sight of the beast and yet he was not the beast instead of the half humanoid brute that i had seen before with the horns curled high on his head and the cloak of scalps clinging to his pale skin there was instead a man dressed in a silken suit that was as formal as it was reassuring there were no fangs no claws nothing that would even suggest such hostility. Upon seeing me, he smiled in a gentle way that did not at all resemble the mocking cruelty that I had witnessed in hell. He retained most of the same facial characteristics, however. The wavy black hair and the aging face had not varied at all, but the eyes were now a brilliant sky blue that seemed to reflect his demeanor. When he smiled at me, His entirety of his whole thin face lit up, and his happiness appeared genuine. His white incisors were perfect, like they had been picked clean just for me. The man approached my table and sat down across from me before extending his hand for me to shake. I was still hesitant, however. How could I forget the ringleader in the misery of hell? The man let out a deep booming laugh, seeing my concern. ''Oh, John, there's no need to get all scared with me. I'm your friend here. I'm trying to help you out, after all. It was me that answered your prayers, wasn't it?'' His voice was deeper and thick, although it was overflowing with ancient power and seemed very inviting. His voice was also encouraging along with his words, but my doubt was very firmly instilled. How do I know you aren't lying? I inquired, my voice layered in distrust. In response, Castor reached over and touched my hand, and immediately warmth spread throughout my body, starting at my fingertips and working its way up my arm until the negative energy that I felt for this man had been thawed. Suddenly. I was not in the presence of an atrocity, but rather an associate, a friendly old man who wanted what was best for me, and was willing to talk terms of business. So I spoke. I went right for the important things. What is it that you can do for me? How can you help? And how can I escape this curse? Castor chuckled to himself. Curse, he murmured under his breath. That's a very much outdated word to describe what you're going through." Then, still chorting, he explained to me my situation. You see, John, hell as you know it is far more than just a place. You should think of it as more of a consciousness. It's a living, breathing force capable of thought and action. When you died in that car accident, you were claimed by hell. You were specifically marked as an inhabitant. When you were revived, the signature on your body was complete, and so Hell tried to bring you back in the only way possible that it knew how. Several times, actually. I'm very surprised you made it this long. In an awfully bizarre way, it made sense. I reflected on all of the incidents that occurred within the last couple weeks. I was still not fully sure if I believed this man. It all seemed too ridiculous to be true. Then again, my entire life had been a swan dive into the abyss of disbelief as of late. So why not believe him? What choice did I really have? Castor, can I call you that? It wouldn't make much sense if you didn't. That is my name. Uh, Castor... You still haven't really answered my question. How do I get rid of this? Well, John, there is a way to prolong your life. There is a deal to be made here. And trust me when I say that this is something that you need. Hell will only make its attempts on your life more and more diligent. You won't last long without my deal. What are the terms of the deal? With that encouraging smile on his face the whole time, Castor told me that if I were to accept his offer and bring him the soul of a female once annually, he would lengthen my time in life for one year each time. With the drunken air of Castor's touch still presiding over my body, the possibility of what being suggested did not seem at all unreasonable. The only question I poised was, How should I do this exactly? His reply was relaxed when it came. To one out of earshot, we might have been discussing the weather. You will find an instrument with which to procure the female souls in your own earth, specifically placed there, just for you. And what exactly happens if I refuse? The question was out of my mouth before I could stop it. Every head in the restaurant turned to face me. Every last person there, young and old, was staring at me reproachfully, as if I had said something overly offensive. The teenager I had seen earlier suddenly looked far more threatening, with his happiness gone and a newfound sinister glare on his face. I could quite literally feel their eyes crawling across me like I was the lowest form of a living thing that had ever existed a lump between two layers of mold and filth. The harp stopped playing abruptly, and a metallic fragrance entered the now cold air. I shivered and looked at Castor himself. All traces of compassion had vanished, and his eyes were the deepest of an amber-yellow. You're fully aware of what will happen. Hell will take you away. With these words, which were so impactful enough on the surface, they meant a whole new multitude of things when you really give it a bit of thought. Diane and Carl were the two most precious things imaginable to me. I wanted to spend every last living moment that I could possibly with my family, but if my curse got the best of me, that would not be possible. I would be sucked down into the very meaning of horror as any one man could know it. There were so many things that I had not done. I hadn't taken Carl to Disney World, I hadn't seen his first day of middle school and hadn't grown old and happy with Diane at my side. What was a man to do? So, without really knowing what I was getting myself into and without considering it for a second longer, I shot back four words into the face of the demon. I accept your offer. The air of normalcy returned to the restaurant. Everyone turned back to their food, and the heart began to whisper its gentle tune. Then, Castor was holding out his hand to me, giving me the same old smile that I had seen throughout the duration of our evening together. And without a moment's hesitation, I shook it. And then I woke up. It was early morning and Diane was making her special blueberry pancakes. Although she had called for me to come to the living room and enjoy my meal with her and Carl, I only lay there in bed, mulling over the dream that I had just received. It had seemed so very real. And that's when the urges came, the sudden inexplicable feeling that I could only make feeble attempts to explain. With a jump in my chest, I hurriedly began to get up, donning my slippers and rushing to the bathroom so that I could brush my teeth. I couldn't exactly tell you the emotion that had taken over my mind, but at that moment, even if I tried, it was impossible. It was a feeling that there was something to be done, something outside my house that I would have to venture forth to find. I had to get out, and I had to find it. I began my unplanned morning walk at a brisk pace heading directly for the wilderness of the woods right behind the house. As I went deeper into the forest, my heart began to pound heavily in my chest. I didn't necessarily know where I was going. I was guided only by some strange internal compass that pushed me to the right way until I reached my destination, a clearing about a hundred yards into the trees. In the middle of the clearing, there sat a singular stump, with an axe embedded in the fine whitened wood. The hidden power behind my actions practically dragged me to it. Then I looked at the axe. Its handle was a dark wood that emanated the scent of pine. It's glistening slightly from the soft sheen of the morning dew that was only enhanced by the early sun. The blade was shiny as could be, and its fine pure silver coloring looked like it had been polished recently. I took hold of it, and wrenched it free from its place in the stump before slowly bringing it around and taking a look at my reflection in the cold metal. The words of Castor from my so-called dream crossed my mind. You will find an instrument with which to procure the female souls in your own earth, specifically placed there just for you. A chill descended over my mind As the full meaning of everything that had been going on since my accident hit me like a thunderbolt. The experience I had last night was no dream. I had made a deal with a demon. I felt the axe slip out of my hands and hit the ground with a dull thud, as I gave this my full consideration. My legs gave out from underneath me and I sat there, thinking for what seemed like hours. What had I agreed to? Why had I been so idiotic enough to force myself to do? These thoughts brewed in my mind. In hindsight, I hadn't been idiotic at all. I had been manipulated by a monster who wanted me to bend to his will. The axe lay on the ground, innocently enough, but I knew of its potential malevolence, procuring female souls, and had I found an axe. Castor wanted me to murder one person each year. Only then would he allow me to be with my family. In anger and frustration, I snatched the axe from the ground and stormed home. I was going to take the axe and bury it deep in the earth where I could never be bothered by its gloomy presence. I came in through the gate in my backyard, doing my best to hide the two and half long weapon under my jacket. I retrieved a shovel from my tool shed and I started to dig and when I finished burying that terrible weapon I headed inside to greet Carl and Diane to my surprise the whole rest of the day occurred without incident there was no freak occurrence that poised a threat to my life at all although I was still very tentative I began to realize that the threat of my life had disappeared and I was free to do as I pleased without the fear of death The day after that, in an act of unofficial and personal celebration, I took my family bowling. Silly as I might sound, nothing can compare with the joy that I had at that ramshackle bowling alley. There's a special kind of love that results from seeing your kin happy, and I rejoiced at the sight of Diane laughing even as she made a terrible attempt at rolling her ball down the center of the lane, only to have it sink into the gutter. Carl, as the goofy boy that he was, gave her a standing ovation each round, cheering her name regardless of whether she did pat well. I myself taught Carl how to bowl, seeing as this was his first time. I showed him how to fit it into his tiny hands and into the slots before sauntering forward, with a form that was no less than perfect, so that he could successfully slide the ball towards the pins that presided on the end of the lane. He was actually quite good at this once he got to the hang of it, and... To the secret incredulity of both me and Diane he ended up beating both of us that night Diane and I made the sweetest love that either of us had managed since those days in our college years where I had arranged for my roommates to be out with nostalgia fueling my sexual desires I climaxed with a satisfaction that was previously unheard of from there over a period of several months Things ran more smoothly than ever. I started going back to work, and was greeted by my co-workers by many welcomes and greetings and claps on the back. I stopped staying so late at the office and began leaving earlier, and in the pre-dawn hours of morning when Diane lay peacefully in sleep. I began to work myself into a cycle. Get up at five, ready yourself for the day, go for a jog, go to work, come home, spend time with Carl, and finally make love to Diane before falling asleep into a restful slumber. Entry four. The Reaper Cometh. <laughs>